Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Plimming, Warden of Cranmer Hall. And in this season of Talking Theology, it's my privilege to bring you some of the most interesting theological thinkers today, exploring the relationship between science and faith. If you enjoy Talking Theology, do subscribe at your favourite podcast provider. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Talking Theo and share on social media. Thank you for listening. Now, on to today's episode. What does studying human behaviour have to offer the dialogue between science and faith? What might religious perspectives have to offer studies in human behaviour? How does the fear of death affect belief? And what can theology learn from the self-critical mode of psychological study? Welcome to this episode of Talking Theology. In today's show, I'll be talking to the Reverend Dr. Jonathan John. Jonathan is a research fellow at Coventry University, where he's also Deputy Director of the Brain, Belief and Behaviour Group. He's also a senior researcher at the Institute for Cognitive and Evolutionary Anthropology at the University of Oxford and an Anglican priest in the Diocese of Chichester. And our question today is, what does psychology have to offer the life of the church today? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Jonathan John, welcome to Talking Theology. Thanks for having me, Philip. Jonathan, I wonder if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about yourself uh, and uh, the journey that you've taken on to the, the current roles you have, combining and exploring science and faith. What's that journey look like? So I, I, I didn't grow up in a religious family. Like I first encountered Christianity mostly through um, evangelical Methodists back in Malaysia, where I grew up, and and I think very quickly adopted a, like a relatively conservative version of the Christian faith. Um, and, you know, like I hopped from church to church whenever I moved to a new city, I would just go to church wherever my friends were. And by the time I ended up at university, um, I, I, I was I was mostly a sort of cons- conservative, charismatic evangelical. But uh, but, I, but I enrolled in a psychology degree. Um, I think I encountered lots of like things about, uh, you know, research about human beings and and in part in particular the sort of evolutionary context of the theorizing that goes on in uh, in university departments of psychology these days and those rubbed up against the sorts of things I was hearing at church like in New Zealand uh, where where this was uh, where I was at the time there there isn't so much of that sort of American style very aggressive anti evolutionary stuff but there was a sort of milder form of it um, I think a lot of people I hung out with were were sort of intelligent design theorists you, you might say. Um, and, and I think you know, their attitudes to the Bible were, 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 were such that I think some of the stuff that I was picking up in, in my psychology degree were, were a little bit difficult. And so, so as an undergraduate, I was wrestling with these questions. And, and so, so people like John Polkinghorne um, and the Faraday Institute at Cambridge became very useful uh, resources for me. And so that was my kind of entry point into the science and religion thing. And then I think... By the time I finished my undergraduate studies, I, I, I sort of was also now religiously homeless. Like I, I was still very much a Christian, but but having kind of distanced myself from my my conservative evangelical background, 
um, I didn't sort of have a home. And, and so two things happened at the same time. One was I had to decide what to do for graduate school. Uh, but given that, you know, I no longer had a church home, no one was going to send me to seminary for that. So I became an Anglican and I became a graduate student around the same time. And given that I was not going to seminary, I decided to just continue being a psychologist. And it turned out that like I was not bad at that particular job. And and because of the kinds of things I was wrestling with at the time, like, you know, like how do you make sense of of like questions of theological anthropology? Um, you know, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean what does it mean to be made image of God? Why is it that I am religious but my friends are not religious? I ended up doing uh, what you might think of as, you know, psychology of religion for for my, my doctoral project. And and that again threw up some more specific questions, right? About, well, you know, here are some theories about why people are religious and some of them are evolutionary theories. Well, like what sense can we make of that as Christians? So so I kind of caused the problem for myself in some ways and and kind of forced myself to try to confront them. And 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 then that, that kick started more serious sort of like academic constructive work on on science and religion so your research over the years has explored the scientific study of religion you've approached it from the perspective of psychology can you just explain for our listeners what the scientific study of religion is and 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 what that approach has particularly involved for you in other words how is it differed to other ways of studying religion i guess the scientific study of religion is like the scientific study of anything else Really right, so uh, it can feel really controversial to say the scientific study of religion. But if you take religion to be, among other things, at least a thing that humans experience and do, then then like other things that humans experience and do, uh, it can be studied from a sort of external observer kind of perspective, right? We can, in the same way that we can study people's voting behavior, or in the same way that we can study what falling in love looks like or why certain people become friends and not other people by the same token we can study why people have the particular religious preferences they have or why some people are not religious at all or we can study um, the phenomenology of religious experiences or we can study the relationship between religious attitudes on one hand and moral behaviors on the other there are any number of questions that we can ask that are just straightforward questions of of observational fact so, so the scientific study of religion is just that, right? It's just asking empirical questions about religion, uh, which is to say questions which have some kind of, of, of like observable answer and applying the tools and methods of psychological science. Um, so so in, in the case of psychology of religion, of psychological science to these questions. And so then within the sort of scientific study of religion, psychology of religion focuses in particular on uh, on what happens in the minds of individuals. It also differs from anthropological and sociological approaches that are less interested in the sort of individual and what happens in his or her mind, but but in how, for example, a, a society or a group functions, or or how a group functions within a society, what the rules might be, implicit or otherwise. So so what psychologists tend to do is to try to get underneath what the official doctrines are, to try to get a sense of of what it is that people believe sort of in, in their minds and what effects this has in the world, either to the behavior of the individuals or, or in their interaction with other people or their effects in, in the physical world. So, so, so in that sense, the, the difference that, that psychology brings is, uh, is, is one of scope or one of focus. 
you, you said it, it's what happens underneath the surface, not what can be just seen and witnessed in terms of a society or in a cult or behaviour. I mean, cult in a technical sense, you know, but but rather what's going on in the in the mind, what's going on below the surface and how that drives or doesn't drive religious behaviour. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So my, my own work is mostly focused on on motivations, on on the on the emotional side of things that that drive our you know beliefs and behaviors um, but that's just one example right so there so the the other the other topic of interest that's relatively uh, recent for my myself is 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 what it means uh in psychological terms to believe something so, so you know we we casually use the term belief in in everyday kind of discourse so like i believe that there is milk in my fridge i believe in god the father almighty i believe in democracy but but these are three like quite different sentences there's an open scientific question about whether or not these are the same mental state right the same mental process so that's the level at which um i'm most comfortable as a psychologist is asking questions about uh, what's going on in someone's head I'm interested in the work that you describe on motivations. What have been some of your key findings from taking a psychological approach to understanding faith about the motivations that are at play for those who believe? I, I sort of hate talking about findings. So I think one of the things about uh, the life sciences in general and the psychological and social sciences in particular is that our findings are very provisional like I, I tend to be really reluctant to say oh like we found this thing and so it's it's true that you know it, it is a huge stretch to say that you know here are some facts right um okay so very roughly there is there is this idea which which you, you find all over the place um across intellectual history but comes to a, a head in the 1970s with the work of a guy called ernest becker who's a sort of anthropologist uh, in the states so so the idea is this right that the the awareness of our mortality and the concomitant terror of death is like the prime human motivator. So, you know, why do we do science? Why do we do art? Why do we, you know, have children? Well, it's to kind of mitigate our terror of, of not existing. It's a kind of way to shore up immortality, either literal or symbolic. Uh, and you can sort of see how, you know, for example, children are, are means of symbolic immortality or something like this. And then, of course, you know, religious beliefs, at least some religious beliefs, um, also obviously provide for, for a sort of literal immortality, you sort of literally live forever. So since the 1980s or so, uh, there's been a, a bunch of work in, in social psychology trying to find evidence that when you get people to think about their own death, they behave in kind of weird ways, right? And so it, so it happens to be the case, right? Like two or three hundred studies have shown that when you get people to think about death, they, they become more desirous of fame and fortune. They want to have more children. They become more nationalistic. They become a bit more sexist. They might become, they might become a little bit more prejudiced against outgroup members. Um, so, so there seems to be some evidence that people kind of like defend their own, you know, in-groups and worldviews and try to kind of propagate their own kind uh, when they're confronted with mortality. But at the time that this was happening, there they seemed to be like surprisingly little work on... Uh, what the effects are of thinking about death on people's religious beliefs. But this, there were a few studies, but not very many. So, so I jumped into this space. So what I find is this, that um, what happens seems to vary uh, depending on how you ask the question. So if you just ask people, 
uh, do you believe in God, right, on a scale of whatever, one to ten or something like this. And what happens is religious people become more religious after they think about death. And non-religious people become less religious, so they become even more certain that God does not exist. So you see this sort of polarizing effect, right? Which remind, reminded me anyway a lot of, of the, the work on, on things like prejudice and nationalism, where when you get people to think about death, they become more nationalistic, they become more, prejudice, they become more prejudicial against people who are not like them. So that was sort of interesting and of one piece with the rest of the literature. But it seemed to contradict the idea that you know, religion provides literal immortality and therefore should be you know, more powerful or something like that. So I ran a bunch of other studies, uh, two in particular, which, which try to measure religious belief, uh, we say implicitly. So by, by bypassing kind of deliberate responding. So instead of asking people questions directly, we, we, we try to present them with, with stimuli, right? Words in this case, and get them to respond as quickly as possible by pressing buttons. Uh, if I measure, when I measured religious belief in that way, then what I found was that both religious and non-religious people seem to kind of shift toward being more religious. As like, if you like people, uh, even non-religious people are, are sort of tempted toward, toward believing that God exists uh, when people think about death. I will say it's, a, it's very controversial. No one really knows what to make of implicit measures. No one really knows whether or not they, they, they work or are reliable or are valid. Um, my, the particular interpretation that I just gave you is one particular interpretation and there are others, but you know, that's getting us into the weeds. Thank you very much indeed, Jonathan. I recognise that what we're talking about here is not just findings, as if that's a kind of piece of data or a fact that we can point at, but rather reflections on the basis of, of research and um, that you've done. But what are your own, if you step back for a moment from that piece of research that you did and those studies that you undertook, what are your own reflections on what might be at play in that interesting finding whereby both religious and non-religious people perhaps move towards faith when thinking about death? I, I really genuinely don't know. I think the data was collected in 2010 or so, um, around about. And so this is over a decade ago now. And I think psychology has, has completely changed in the last 10 years. People are a lot, like psychologists are, are ourselves a lot more critical of our own methodologies. We're a lot more concerned about, um, about how big our studies should be in terms of how many participants they should be. We're much more concerned with how to, how to replicate, um, our, our own findings. And so I think looking back now, I don't know if there's much to say about the findings except that, like, the, the method is, interesting like i still find the method interesting because there's still an open question about what what these methods mean right what like what does it mean to measure something uh bypassing people's direct deliberate responding and you know and even if that were possible is are these particular ways that rely on reaction times the best ways to to do that kind of thing um like i like i i don't ask these questions as a kind of you know uh tricky way of saying uh, it's a rhetorical question and the answer is no, or it's a rhetorical question and the answer is yes. Like these are just open questions. So, like psychological science at the moment is the wrong place to look for like answers. <laughs> I think like it's a really good place to look for really interesting questions to pursue. And that itself is interesting, isn't it? In this series, we're exploring the complex, subtle, and changing relationship between science and faith. And one of the things we are exploring is that a, a simple conflict uh, narrative doesn't work. But we're also exploring the fact that it's not a question that science gives simple answers and can look down in kind of 
uh, empirical superiority on faith as this kind of fuzzy sort of uh, non-evidence-based experience and science is completely different. What you've been describing is a shift within the last 10 years within the psychological field of people. Sounds to me as if being prepared to be that little bit more humble about the scope of research and about the findings that come from that and recognizing complexity even with the field and provisionality even within the field of psychological study. Uh, Does that suggest to you what's going on behind that move and what might that have to say for the ongoing relationship between science and faith? Okay, so I'm going to push back a little bit on the psychologist no longer feel superior kind of bit. So, okay, so here's my here's my favorite example of this. Okay, if we don't do the science, right, we have all these like clever proverbs, right? You know, like uh, birds of a feather flock together, right? Clever proverb, very venerable, feels true, right? Here's another proverb, right? Um, opposites attract. Equally venerable, right? Everybody believes it, feels true. Literally the opposite of birds of a feather flock together. But we, but we, but both of them seem super compelling, right? And and so like the alternative to to do to collecting the data, the the alternative to that seems to be to like just guess and then enshrine our guesses in pithy sayings, which we then put in books and then circulate around the world. And like psychology might not be amazing, right? Like, but we have discovered our own limitations. Whereas these proverbs have been circulating for like a thousand years, and no one seems to go, wait a second, is it true? So like I like I definitely still feel superior as a as a kind of like student of human behavior to people who will speculate about about the motivations behind people's behaviors with like no evidence or any interest in collecting empirical evidence whatsoever. So let's not go so far as to say, oh, you know, like psychologists are really humble now because, you know, we've discovered that our, our methodologies are, are limited. Well, you know, they're limited, but they're, they're, they're a good sight better than guessing. I think there's something important about the fact that psychologists worked out that psychology is in trouble. The, the critical self-reflection in built into science more broadly, um, and, and to some extent psychology in particular, because psychologists, I think, better than um, uh, people in lots of other disciplines, are aware that there are such things as cognitive biases. I think for that reason, the critical scrutiny that's turned on psychology now is a kind of triumph for psychologists, because it means that our process is working. Now, like it's true that we have to abandon a lot of our old theories and we have to question a lot of the old empirical work. But it's kind of amazing that this is all instigated within the community itself. It's not as though physicists came in and say, hey, by the way, have you checked your data? Like it was psychologists who asked each other about this. I do think that one of the things that Christians should learn from this sort of brouhaha is, is this kind of critical self-reflection. Is, you know, does theology, right, either academic or otherwise, have a similar kind of self-critical mode so that... Um, we can check our own work in in this kind of way, or does it not? And if and if not, is that a problem? So I think that's that's one question that is raised by uh, by this thing. I think the other is that psychologists now more than ever are open to interdisciplinary work because we are we are now more aware than ever that the things that we can measure, the things that we can manipulate, are a small slice of the things in the world. So so my own field, most of the empirical work is still done by anthropology, psychology teams, but there, there are more and more philosophers and theologians who are interested in, in, in helping psychologists think through what the, what the relevant constructs are, what the relevant hypotheses are that might be interesting to, to, to test, um, based in part uh, you know, um, on, on what theologians and religious studies scholars 
uh, know about religion in the real world, right? One of the limitations uh, of of psych- psychological scientists studying religion is the vast majority of us are not religious. I think Weber used to say that that he was religiously unmusical, that he he doesn't sort of understand in his bones the religious sentiment. And a lot of my colleagues are like that. They they're you know they're either atheists or agnostics, and they don't really get religion as a as a thing that people would want to have anything to do with personally. And that just is a limitation on their part in terms of imagining the right questions to ask or or asking them the right way, right? And and I think um, now more than ever, we are we're more psychologists are more open to hearing from people of other disciplines, knowing that they have expertise to bring to the table. I wonder what else might you point to in terms of the role or the value that a that a psychology of religion might play in the life of the church? In other words, why do you think it matters beyond those who are particularly kind of psychologists themselves? What's it got to contribute towards the church as well as contributing to the field of psychological study in itself? Sure, that's a good question. So you know how we say all Christians are theologians? Uh, and that may well be true, but but then most of us also feel, even if we don't say it out loud, that, that lots of Christians are terrible theologians. So it turns out that the same thing can be said about psychologists. Most Christians, and in fact most humans, are psychologists in the sense that we very often speculate about the causes and consequences of human attitudes, beliefs, behaviors, and emotions, right? We are constantly moving around the world saying things like, oh, you know, this person doesn't go to church because such and such a thing. Or, or at an institutional level, uh, the church is tempted to, to, to believe that it knows how to discern the, the appropriate character traits uh, for, for what makes a good priest. So, so we're constantly behaving like psychologists, and we're very often doing so on the basis of nothing. And so, so to the extent that, that we are already psychologists and perhaps poor ones with very little empirical data uh, to back us up, maybe it would be a good idea to, in, to, to get some data. So like, if you have a question about why humans do such and such a thing, like my answer is I don't know, but like, let's find out. I'm not saying that the best way is always the way that, you know, a psychological scientist is trained to, to conduct these studies. But, but that's, that's at least part of, of the answer. You mentioned earlier that um, many of your colleagues do not have a faith. They're either atheists or agnostics. You, of course, are a psychologist with a faith. You're an ordained priest. I wonder how you might articulate the integration you've achieved in terms of your own faith. You kindly reflected on the journey that you've got in your own experience of faith where does that integration of psychology and faith find itself in your life at the moment if i may ask i think very early on in my kind of worrying about these sorts of questions i began to see that there's a kind of difference i think between the things that we can measure and observe and the things that we say are are real. All empirical observations, or rather most empirical observations in, in the sciences now in the 21st century are, are matters of like quite complex measurement. Um, we do still see things with our eyeballs and hear things with our ears, but more likely we use um, quite complex instruments that require a lot of uh, a lot of kind of interpretation to get underneath what they mean. That, that makes you see, I think, and certainly made me see that there is an active role of 
of the believer, uh, and I, I don't just mean the Christian believer. I mean, I just mean any like intellectual agent. Um, there's a there's a there's a real job here to to interpret the the deliverances of science, if you like, uh, which are its theories and its published empirical observations, and and that that makes the job both easier and harder, right? To I mean, the job of being a Christian uh, in science, it makes the job easier in the sense that it opens up the possibilities of interpretation. So so it's not the case that when you have some scientific theory or some scientific discovery, there's a straightforward relationship of entailment with some picture of the world, right? But it makes the job harder because then then you have to figure out how to fill in the gap between the observation or theory and a picture of the world, which you which may or may not be consistent with Christian faith. I, I said earlier that I kind of fell into thinking about science and religion, science and theology, sort of not, not so much by accident, so much as by like self-inflicted, you know, problem, uh, but 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 it's it's because a I, I decided to do research on why people are religious, but b also because I, I kind of came to this idea that the job of interpretation is mine. Like I like I have I can't outsource the metaphysical interpretation to scientists. Like I have to do that work, um, right? As as a Christian, as a person, right? As a philosopher, here's a slogan, right? Like you can't let physicists tell you what's in the world. It sounds like that's their that's their job, but it's not really. Uh, you can't outsource the job of telling you the nature of the human mind to psychologists. Like it re- that really isn't our job. Like we we collect data and construct theories, but doing you know philosophy of mind or theological anthropology, like that is just not our job as psychologists. That's that's kind of your job um, if you are a philosopher of mind or a the- or, or a theologian, um, or or you know or really just like just a person who's interested in these questions. One of your roles now is as a parish priest. And I wonder how you bring your insights as a psychologist into your uh, priestly ministry as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Human motivations are, are complex. We often say, you know, here's the reason I believe X or here's the reason I do X. But there's usually more going on than, than even that which we can articulate and I think keeping that in the back of my mind whenever I interact with parishioners or, you know, people who visit the church or or vendors or the bishop or whatever, there is there is the thing that they say, and then there's the thing that they believe is going on in their minds, and then there's the thing that's actually going on in their minds, and like who knows what that is. I think the the general idea that people are complex with complex motivations has been very kind of useful in me navigating all kinds of situations. Uh, some very straightforward, some a bit more complicated. You know, either pastoral or management or um, so that's that's kind of the substantive side of things. But I, I think in some ways a more important thing is the methodological side of things, which is that as an experimental psychologist, the the mantra is. You know, oh, like you've got a question. Well, there's only one way to find out, which is to try, right? And then like observe what happens, uh, right? So like I dress in black, I wear a dog collar. In many ways, I'm very traditional. On, on the other hand, right, I, I think that it's a mistake to, to do that very Anglican thing of doing something the same way forever because, quote unquote, we have always done it this way. I think bringing to the table, to parish ministry, a kind of experimental mindset, a willingness to try different things, even things that I think a priori, I would never want to do that, like, I don't know, like a pet service or blessing a tractor, or I wouldn't necessarily kind of do that under my own steam. But, you know, if someone suggests I will do it because, you know, let's see what happens, right? And so so the, the kind of attitude that experimental psychologists 
have, I think, as part of their training, which is, well, you know, I wonder what will happen if you do this in a lab. Well, I don't know. Let's find out. Like that, that attitude, I think, is a useful one in, in parish ministry, especially in, in rural parish ministry, where that, that mindset of doing things the, the same way forever, it does seem more common here. This, that stereotype seems to be true. So, so I think that's kind of more important thing that my, my training has brought than any particular you know, bit of insight about how humans work. I think this episode has been a good example of let's see what happens. Jonathan Jong, thank you very much indeed for appearing on Talking Theology. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall within St. John's College, Durham University. This series of Talking Theology on the relationship between science and faith is being brought to you in partnership with the project Equipping Christian Leaders in an Age of Science. For more information about Cranmer Hall, please visit cranmerhall.com.